A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmade and this week we look back to May 2014 and the second of two podcast episodes which attempt to explore the music, the man and the myth of composer Sir Harrison Birtwistle with a rare interview with the composer himself and the many musicians who surround him. I'm not a, an, an architect. I make a scheme for a piece. And if I have an, any originality in me, it is about this thing. Mm. It is how time is expressed. The way in which I express it is to do with the, the gestures within the music. So let's continue our fantastical journey into the music of Harrison Birtwistle. We'll dig into the tectonic strata of earth dances and find ourselves counting sheep with Yantan Tetherer. Most importantly, we'll hear from those with first-hand experience of his music. Singer Sir John Tomlinson. There's a lot of mystery about writing music. I mean, I sometimes wonder if the piece becomes bigger than anything that the composer might have conceived. I don't, I don't know, honestly. Violinist David Alberman. Once he played his, his music before, I know he wants this bit that sounds like a scream really should be like a scream, or this bit that sounds like a growl should be a growl, but equally this bit that surprisingly looks like a really sad, plaintive melody, that's exactly what it is. Let's continue now our interview with the composer himself in his publisher's office in the West End of London. I spoke to him trying to understand his long-handed approach to the music, how often he orders his routine and manipulates time. I'm going to start with a typical day, if that's okay. Is, is, there, is there a typical day? Yes, there's a typical day at the beginning of the day, but how it develops usually is not typical. <laughs> and there is no foretelling uh, its fulfilment. Um, you know, the consequently, in this... This what you loosely call creativity. Yeah, you, you can't take it for granted. So then, then you don't know how the day is going to go. Uh, it depends where I am. I I approach my work with trepidation or 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 a sort of a feeling I know what I'm doing. But it doesn't take too long to know that you don't know what you're doing. It, it's it's in a permanent process of making decisions. And there are only so many decisions that that you can make in a day, um, and one's enough. But the other side of writing music 
is this question, because I live in the 20th century, not the 21st century, I don't deal with the computer. So I have a lot of pencil work, mm. and, and, and in the sort of music that I write, is, which is quite detailed and that. So there's a lot of, a lot of is it, I think it's called donkey work, <laughs> which is actually copying. So that fulfills a certain amount of the day as well. And I like to get it so that, so that I'm, not, uh, I'm not copying at the beginning of the day because that's negative. Um, there, I find that there are one or two moments of golden moment at the beginning where, you know, I feel that I can make decisions. So I don't want to be doing something which is purely mundane. Is there an aspect of daydreaming then? How would you... Daydreaming? Yeah, we you know. How do you... How do you Put yourself into the state of creativity. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> With difficulty. I mean, I have no romantic notion about creativity or or ideas or whatever. Um, you know, the uh, the word that's um, banded around a lot. I when you read the the, the pages of um, of media, uh, this. The, the, the word inspiration comes up a lot. Well, I think it's nonsense, you know, that you're to be inspired. I don't know. I, 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 maybe I'm, if I'm inspired, I'm permanently inspired. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not suddenly, it usually passes as a way of, a way of uh, filching somebody's ideas when when they talk about, oh, I was inspired by that. They don't mean that. They mean that they took the idea and, made it hopefully for, uh, they make it something for themselves I don't know you're allowed to, you're allowed to do that because history shows that you're allowed to do that it's never an obvious thing you know inspiration if you want to use the word um, I use it loosely is um, there's inspiration whereby you 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 you, you consciously take something or you 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 know, and but then there's inspiration which comes under the door in in the breeze, which you have no, you don't know, and someone might, you know, you suddenly, or somebody might say, well, you know, it's rather like this, and oh, I'm not sure. If not inspiration, maybe influence. Is that is that a good way of describing it? I mean, it, but that's the same thing again. You can't be. You, influence is something you have no control over. You see. Uh, I have uh, I'm, on the continent um, thing that's usually commented about my work is that it's non-European and that it's it's English. That but whatever that is, I have no idea. I mean, I I read things which about this sort of. I think that that, that um, you get hold of the idea that it becomes something to write about, um, and it becomes. Uh, uh, it's sort of given to the media in order to uh, uh, talk about it, but I, I'm not conscious. If if there is such a thing like um, influence or uh, culture, um, it's something you can't consciously belong to. Mm. You know, it is you, or in a way, rather pretentiously, you make 
you make culture, yeah? Mm-hmm. But I don't sit down in my desk in the morning and then I hear it. Here I go again. I'm an English composer, you know, and this is how I do it. I mean, it's not, nothing to do with it. I suppose an interesting question is, do you, do you enjoy the process? You know, when you've been doing it as long as I have, I, I enjoy the possibility. It's, it's possibility, mm. yeah. Infinite possibility. Yeah, yeah. And the realization. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Of when it's not, it's not a question of realizing ideas because ideas is an interesting question um, about what an idea is. Because I find to be confronted with a clear idea is that it, it, uh, it disappears rather quickly in the course of doing it and becomes something else. It becomes, it has its own identity. And the idea, you know, I don't know if you've experienced it. Well, I know that you have. I mean, everybody does. Is that um, if, you're going, if you're going to a place that you, is in your imagination, mm-hmm. you say, uh, I, know, I remember a, as a child saying we'd go on holiday somewhere and... It grows up in your head, and immediately you get there. It's not that place, hmm? yeah. and that uh, you know that's the yeah, and it's a bit like that. That that place that in your imagination, to some extent, exists, but it, and but at the same time, it 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 loses its identity by the the reality of the of the actual thing itself. I, I suppose leading on to that then is are you surprised by the, the music and the concept as a whole that you create by the end of the process? Depends by what. In a sense I'm I'm as it were striving towards or something is is the thing of how of continuity um, of how time is expressed. 
No, I do. I, I mean, I've just written a piano concerto which lasts 25 minutes. And, and this continuity or discontinuity, the whole way the piece speaks, it's like the journey of a novel. And this is one thing which is the most difficult aspect of the sort of music I write because the listener as a relation to it is not like uh, the information of, of popular music. Mm. And it's maybe it's something that you have to become familiar with. You have to hear it a few times maybe to get the idea of it. This question about what, the, what my piece is, is about this very thing. I mean, that's what keeps me awake at night. Mm how I make, and, and they're not prescribed structures. I'm not a, a, an architect who I make a scheme for a piece um, because music and time has its own way of ex unique way of exploring. And, and if I have an, any originality in me, it is about this thing mm. that it is, it is how time is expressed. The way in which I express it is to do with the, the gestures within the music. You're listening to a series of interviews put together to coincide with the Burt Whistle at 80 series that took part at the Barbican from the 16th to the 30th of May 2014. We next found ourselves in that year at the Barbican itself to meet up with Professor Jonathan Cross, who was involved in the symposium and study afternoon. When, when I say the name Harrison Burt Whistle, what, what comes into your head? Well, immediately I think of a music of immense power. Uh, it's music that, for me anyway, speaks very, very directly. I remember my very first experience when I was a student of encountering some of his music. It was a piece that was written in the 1960s, in fact. I remember it really vividly, called Verses for Ensembles, that a friend of mine said, here you go, here's a disc, listen to that. It kind of blew me away. I don't think I really understood it at the time, mm. but I, I knew instantly that I was in the presence of something really very important and very powerful. Slightly misunderstood? I don't know whether misunderstood. I think, as often with certain kinds of modernist music, audiences can be a little bit afraid of it because it's not, it doesn't speak in entirely familiar ways. But I think if you, if you give it time uh, and prepare to go with it, I think it, it, it does speak. And particularly the operas have proven to be extraordinarily successful in, in the opera houses. Works like Gawain, that's being played as part of this festival, the Minotaur, have filled the Royal Opera House, which I think is very exciting. I mean, one of the pieces is Earth Dances, and I think this is a good example. As well as a great musical ambition, there's this other aspect to a lot of his work, which are these ginormous ideas. Yeah, exactly. You know, ideas of myth and place, the idea of the ancient. I think this is what, for me, is one of the most powerful things about his music. It is something that is very modern, very up-to-date, and yet at the same time can seem almost ancient. And he chooses these very ancient stories, whether it's medieval legend or ancient Greek legend or ancient places, like the prehistoric mound in Wiltshire, Silbury Hill, that he's 
built a piece out of. And Earth Dances is, is another of these that is constructed with these ideas almost like sort of ancient shifting strata in the earth. You know from its very opening low notes that you're in for something big. It's like you know, the beginning of the, the Matthew Passion of Bach or the beginning of Beethoven Ninth Symphony. You know, it's something quite monumental. And that, that kind of subject matter, those sorts of ideas really appeal to him. And as we started talking about the London Symphony Orchestra's performance of Earth Dances, let's take a little sidestep to look at this more with LSO violinist David Alberman, followed by the composer himself. Uh, when you do think about the Earth and what's under our feet and what's a mile and two miles and 50 and 100 miles below our feet, you realise that, that any illusion we might have of, of control over the world or of understanding the world is just that, it's an illusion. And I love the way that you get very clear dance episodes coming in over these gargantuan passages which, which do feel dangerously out of control and, and that feeling that you can't quite place... why the dances are happening then and how the dance, this dance got to that dance and are we floating between the high parts and the low parts? We don't always know. And, and to me, that feeling, of, and, and it will, it shakes you off of it and that's, I would say that is a good thing and take from it everything that, as it comes hurtling past you. You probably, even after you walk out of the hall, bits will be coming together in your mind that you had no idea were connected and I, I like the way the music has that effect. For instance, I didn't think of a title, Earth Dances, and, that, and then I'll write a piece about this. Yeah. I, mean, I sat down to write a piece which um, deals with stratification of simultaneity of different layers of material. And, and there's an analogy there between, and and uh, uh, and, uh, and a sort of fundamental analogy between the two things. Then you see the title finds itself. Very early on, I wrote a piece called "The Triumph of Time." Well, I um, I didn't I didn't see a picture by uh, it's a woodcut actually. I wrote a piece, "The Triumph," uh, uh, wrote a piece of music and saw the saw this picture um, which is a procession and it's a procession which is led by an elephant now you know i said well you know this is like my piece you know because obviously this piece this and, and it's an analogy therefore he's saying that time moves slowly and um and and it's to do with uh sort of really it's only when you get to another picture you can see that they're that they're passing a tree and the tree is in full flower and leaf on one side. You can see as they're passing, it's it's dead. Yeah, you know, so it's all about it's all about time and and, and you know there's a, there are way scales and they're equal. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know, but and so I identified I identified it. Yeah. Mm. 
academic Jonathan Cross. I think for his generation, I think he was the first, certainly British composer, that, that was was thinking in in new ways. There was an extraordinary coming together of composers in the 1950s in Manchester, what was then the Royal Manchester, now the Royal Northern College of Music. There was him, there was Peter Maxwell Davis, there was Alexander Gurr, and other very influential musicians too, like Elgar Howarth, the, the conductor, John Ogden, the pianist. They, they weren't in London, which I think is very significant. They, they were, many of them, like Bertwistle and Maxwell Davis, were, were northern Lancashire composers. They didn't have quite that same tradition. These were grammar school boys rather than the sort of the privileged elite of previous generations. It was the excitement of the new, certainly in the 50s, that really grabbed them. We continue to move now through a cross-section of Harrison Whistle's music, which was heard as part of the Whistle at 80 series. We now move from deep within the earth to the shepherds high in the fields counting their sheep. On the 29th of May 2014, Bert Whistle's supernatural opera, Yantan Tetherer, was performed by Britain Symphonia. Well, again, you can see there that the sorts of themes that he's really interested in. You've, you've got the nature, you've got the sort of the north versus, versus the south, but you've got number and ritual. Number is actually very important to Bert Whistle. I'm very privileged to have been able to see some of the sketches for a lot of his work. They're covered with numbers. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, if you like, it's the way that he works in order to, to generate his material. And work like Yantan Tetherer, they, they rise to the surface. So this counting, this, this sort of ancient way of uh, counting Yantan Tetherer, Metherer, Pimp, goes on over and over and over again. Not only the numbers themselves, but the way that, in which they're said take on this kind of ritual dimension and, and structure uh, the course of, of the piece in, in very, very interesting ways. Director John Lloyd Davies added, It grows out, in some ways it grows out of his earlier pieces, which were kind of crossover music theatre pieces, which were theatrical, were through, composed through sung, but were not remotely like any other kind of music theatre. Um, on the other hand, there are very recognisable operatic aspects to Yantan Tethra. There are soloists, there's a chorus, there's an orchestra, there's a, a, a through line story it's a story which follows a kind of mythic form it's like a, a fairy tale which we vaguely remember but in fact we don't quite know where it came from but all sorts of echoes within the story remind us of the pied piper of hamlin or different kinds of stories where where children or people are taken away and then have to years later be freed from from curses or different kinds of imprisonment so far on this podcast, we've had the perspective of the academic, the musician and the director. So let's move on to one of perhaps the more vital roles when bringing Burt Whistle's music to the concert hall or opera stage, that of the conductor. Burt Whistle at 80 was opened with a concert hall staging of the composer's iconic opera of the 1990s, Gawain. This was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Martin Brabins, who has a long association with the composer. Harry's music is multi-layered. It's like three conversations happening in the, in the room at the same time, and e each of them of equal importance, or at least, you know, from moment to moment, that one of the conversations is more important than another. And you have to coordinate all this, these, this multi-layered activity is, is, uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's really something quite special for Harry's music. And it gives it its sort of epic quality, I think, because, there is a, a, a grandeur in Harry's conception 
um, an uncompromising sort of long long term thinking that takes takes the listener on a, on a very convincing but um, personal journey. Very very demanding. There's a definitely a very strong element to Harry's music. Uh, very strong, driven pulses uh, and very exciting percussion and brass effects. So there's there's a surface glamour and brilliance about his music, which is uh, is certainly one one element. Contrasting to that, and equally effective is his. He can write amazing melodies. I mean, you know, not melodies a la Mozart or Rachmaninoff, but nonetheless melodies that are absolutely inevitable in their the journey they take. It can take a couple of couple of minutes to get into the world of Harry. It can also take years for some people. Um, but for me, his 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 world is very well worth visiting and I I always I'm always excited at the prospect of conducting Harry's music the, the incredible percussion tintinabulation you know this amazing combination of marimba vibraphone glockenspiel cimbalum harp making its own mini orchestra it's got a, he creates an incredible sound world just in that and then there's of course there's the rest of the orchestra which is Vast, including three tubers, which is you know two more than is usual in most most ninety nine point nine percent of of symphonic music. So there's there's an incredible range of sound, a range and variety of sound worlds that uh, the listener can relish, which I I think they should. I mean, there's a there's a sometimes there's a, a tendency to be put off by the the sheer stark demanding uncompromising nature of Harry's writing but if you go along with it if you get you let yourself go into that world it's absolutely all embracing and is there a lot of trust between um, a conductor and and a composer especially when you're obviously performing new work well there has to be I do take my responsibility to living composers very very seriously partly I suppose because I I trained myself for two years as a composer I did a master's in composition at one point was thinking that maybe that was the direction I, I might travel in as well I enjoy it I I find it very stimulating having a composer a living composer in the project that you're doing in delivering uh, delivering their music to, to the public there's a good deal of collaboration and dare I say it, creativity involved in on the part of the, the conductor in bringing to life these black notes, black blobs on, on white paper. You, you do have to somehow try and get behind the, the thought processes and the, what the composer was trying to achieve by writing the music in the way they do. And then there's the technical and practical work of just putting the thing together. Um, especially with Harry's music, it's demanding. It's very, very technically challenging, physically challenging, um, very long and uh, involved. One has to concentrate very, very hard for long spans of time. You know, when I say one, me and the hundred or whatever it is musicians we have, it's a, it's a demanding and uh, all-consuming sort of activity.
In the case of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, of course, they're well-versed in Harry's music, and I've conducted you know, several pieces of Harry's with them. So they, 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 probably more than any other orchestra in the UK, are familiar with the, the language, the style, you know, what, what, uh, what, what Harry's trying to achieve. That's not to say that um, doing Gawain, which they won't have done before, is not going to be a challenge. Of course it is. Um, somehow, one of the difficulties for orchestral musicians is complexity of the complexity, if you like, and the, the, the different kinds of demands on them from minute to minute. You know, the, the music changes rapidly so that the structure is very complex and the details within the structure are also very complex. And it can be very exhausting to keep that level of concentration. You know, we'll be rehearsing several days for six hours a day, you know, and it's some of the music is very loud and that in itself can be quite oppressive for musicians and, you know, uh, affects them physically. So, yes, the conductor's role is it's probably more complex than people believe, especially in rehearsal. You know, in, in performance, they expect what, you know, what they see is normal. Conductors stand in the front and, you know, get all the applause at the end and so on. So it's the conductor's the hero. But, of course, there's, there's one heck of a lot of just hard graft uh, in, in putting things together and hard graft psychologically as well because one has to constantly be aware of, you know, discontent or difficulties in sections or something that people want to repeat or, you know, either there, there are many, many things you learn with, with years of experience, which, you know, I've been conducting now for 25 years. I, I, I'm getting the hang of it, but it's, it's by no means simple. Okay, as the imaginary stage curtain is ready to close on this podcast series, and as we prepare to leave these unique, painstakingly built universes of sound and music, let's hear one last time from the composer and some final thoughts, including the story behind that infamous pantomime horse. Do you see certain stage directions? Do you see, do you see light or anything else as one kind of complete package? I am sort of interested in the theatre of the impossible, in that, um, and and I have very clear ideas, but I wouldn't never venture to uh, 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 to express them in a way of saying what exactly what they are. Okay. Yeah, and it's that, that. So there's a certain analogy between. But I was working a few years back now at the National with Peter Hall on, on the three last plays of. Um, of Shakespeare. And Alison Chitty, who has designed a lot of my things, I said to Alison, is it possible to make a, a pantomime horse which is noble? You know, that you can actually get on it and, and let it... And having said that, um, is it actually possible to cut somebody's head off and for him to pick it up and sing? And the answer to all these questions in theatre is anything's possible. Yeah. And, and, and if, you, if you take... Um, and it's the, it's the language of theatre 
And, uh, and the trouble with today and with technology is that everything's too easy. That's right. Well, you know, that, there's an element of why it's successful is the, this puppet, mm. yeah? yeah? It's what people are interested in, is this horse. It's not real, but it's making me believe yeah. what it thinks. And, and it's, um, so it's that aspect of theatre I'm I, I, I interested in. And what I'm more interested in now is, is a theatre of uh, a sort of, of small situations, mm-hmm. is you could have close-up, close-up in every respect, um, close-up, because uh, in grand opera there is no close-up. And in theatre, there is no close-up. But, so I'm sort of been dealing with smaller, smaller things where you can deal, you can look at it in a different way, with very few musicians and very, you know, one or two singers. Finally, I asked Jonathan Cross if he would call himself a Burt Whistle fan and, and what that could possibly mean. Yeah, I love the idea of being a Burt Whistle fan, you know, a Burt Whistle groupie. But it's true, there aren't so many composers whose next work you really look forward to hearing. And a, a Burt Whistle premiere is always a very exciting event. His music has changed over the decades. Yeah, I first got to know it in, oh, heavens, yeah, the early 1980s. It's... In some ways, it's very different now from how it was in the 1980s. In other respects, it hasn't changed at all. And I think it's, it's that consistency that I admire, but also his ability every time to find a new perspective on that. Again, it might sound rather crazy to say it's actually a very simple music. The ideas that he's dealing with of ritual, of repetition, of pulse, of pitch focus... These are ideas that are present in so much music. And in fact, you can find very familiar structures from much earlier music in books, whether it's uh, verse-refrain patterns from song, whether it's restative and aria that you find in opera, going back to, right back to the beginnings of opera in, in, in Monteverdi and so on. So there's an extraordinary simplicity there, and therefore I think uh, a great directness. And yet, time and again, it's... When I come back to it over the, over the years, it's, it's that, I think, that speaks to me most powerfully. The extraordinary thing is, he's 80. It doesn't seem like it. He's writing more music now than ever, you know. So, well, you know, Elliot Carter went on well into his hundreds, and let's hope Burt Whistle does too. I'm Ben Eshmade. Thanks for listening to this second of two archive Burt Whistler 80 editions of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. These editions in the series are here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAR, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.